Hello everybody out there, this is Politics Today with James O'Hara, and let's get started. It's August 23rd, it is a Sunday, um, and is the day before the Republican convention begins um, for the renomination of President Trump. And this is coming on the heels of the Democratic National Convention, which just ended on Thursday of last week, uh, with, of course, a resounding four days of speeches and presentations by all sorts of uh, Democrat activists and former politicians. Um, and for those of you who watched it, it was pretty interesting. Um, I think overall it was a good convention. Um, so we're going to get into that a little bit today. Uh, we're going to talk about the DNC and recap some of the important highlights of the speeches that were given. Um, and I'll also tell you guys about the postal conspiracy that is going on currently in the country. So those things just ahead. Um, but before I get into all that stuff, I want to set the stage for you um, and talking about the DNC. So the other night, um, I actually was sitting there watching because I'm a nerd and I watch boring political stuff all day. Um, I was sitting there watching a, an interview with Ronald Reagan. And it was an interview being done by Tom Brokaw. It was at the end of Reagan's presidency. It was kind of like an exit interview as he is leaving the White House. Um, that was the, uh, the status of the interview. So it was the end of his presidential administration. He had nothing left um, to, to really campaign on or anything like that. He was, he was leaving the White House. And Tom Brokaw was chosen to give this interview. And it was an excellent interview. It raised a couple of things. One, you don't hear interviews like that anymore from most journalists today. Um, I don't think a journalist today could give an interview the way Tom Brokaw did. Um, it was a respectful interview, um, an honest interview, and it was entertaining. And, and it wasn't full. It wasn't a type of interview where you're jabbing the president with tough questions. But it was more of a how would the president recap his years in office, that kind of thing. So very nice interview. Um, I recommend you look it up. It's Tom Brokaw and Ron Reagan at the end of it. But the reason why I bring that up is in the interview, when Tom Brokaw is asking him about his childhood, kind of recapping, you know, what, how was his childhood and all the things that led up to him, of course, being president, holding the highest office in the land. And Reagan's response to it is is telling it's if you know anything about ron reagan obviously he's a very conservative person um you know he was arguably one of the best presidents in the 20th century um with a very st stiff on his convictions um especially when it came to the cold war and things like that but he had mentioned a story of when he was starting out how he had um he was looking for a job um he had gone to college and he was looking for a job and he was going around everywhere. He, he said he, had, he had, went out trying to get a job at this big um, radio firm. He wanted to be entertainment, be in the radio. And at the time, radio was a new uh, medium happening. So he goes and he tries to get this job, this big radio firm. And they basically reject him and he, he doesn't get the job. Um, so he goes back to uh, where he's from and he starts looking at you know other things. And he actually went to go interview at a, at a store, um, a sporting goods store. To sell sporting equipment. If you know Ron Reagan, he was a football player in, in his high school years. And so he goes to this interview, he sits to the interview, and it ends up he doesn't get the job. He gets rejected. And he then, you know, kind of out of all of it, goes and applies for a, a radio position at this small little station in his town. He even gets rejected for that, but as he's walking out of the interview, 
Um, he like kind of mumbles under his breath that man can't can't get a break, can't get. Uh, how do you get a job if you can't get? You know, how do you get into entertainment if you can't get a job? And the guy ended up asking him about sports casting, and he said, "Hey, you know, he, the, the owner of the radio station." He goes, "Do you do you have any experience with sports? Um, like if I if you were seeing a football game, would you be able to tell me what was going on and let me visualize it?" And Ron Reagan answered, "Well, yeah, I can. I." I have a lot of experience. I played football for eight years. I, I could tell you the sport. I think I could do that. And he sat him right then and there, and he had him giving him an imaginary, sat him behind a microphone, and him giving an imaginary game, and he recited it. And he did such a good job. The guy says, "You know what? Uh, you're hired. We we need someone to to sportcast um, our our football game." So he got hired for that. Um, and in response, Tom Brokaw asked about this. He goes, "You know, so what? So what does that mean? What's the moral of the story, so to speak?" And Ronald Reagan's answer was that everything happens for a reason. And not only that everything happens for a reason, but there there are things that happen in life that are like a crossroads. Had you gone one way, you get a different result for everything else that happens in your life. This is Ronald Reagan's belief system. You know, For example, had he gotten that job at the sporting goods store that he had applied to, then he never would have went to that radio station and interviewed for this uh, sportcasting job and got on the radio. And had he never gotten on the radio, then he would have never probably went out and got into a career in acting in California and then, of course, later a political career after that. So he, he equates everything together. He goes, you know, had he, had he gotten that job he so wanted at this, uh, this, uh, this sports store, he never would have perhaps even became president. He, he, his answer was he'd probably still be sitting there um, selling sporting goods at the store. You know, and he never would have pursued something else. And I think it's a greater metaphor to where the country is. We take that story from Reagan, and you take that story of had he gone and made one decision, he would have went down one path. And because that decision wasn't available or something didn't happen, it didn't work out, he went down another path. Right, and that's kind of where our country is at right now. You know, the DNC, Democrat National Convention, they did they did a, a very good job pushing this crossroads uh, philosophy, this crossroads theory. Right? Um, they had John Kasich, who was a Republican, uh, former governor of Ohio. He spoke and he gave a little speech, a little Zoom speech that. Uh, he was standing at a crossroads, uh, as the metaphor went, talking about the, the two ways our nation can go, right? And uh, obviously one way was Biden and voting for Joe Biden, and the other way was uh, re-electing Donald Trump. And you know, he was trying to say Biden was the good choice and, and so on and so forth. So the crossroads metaphor really applies here when we talk about the DNC, and later we'll talk about the Republican National Convention, which is starting um, next week. And we'll see what these two uh, eminent ends of the crossroads are. And whether we make, as a country, one decision which will lead us down one way or another decision which will lead us down a different way. Now, if you listen to the Democrat National Convention, you're going to get uh, a whole lot of go down this. The vote for Biden is going to send us down the right way on the crossroads, right? So inevitably, there's this right way and wrong way 
that is being set up, right? There's a good and an evil being set up in the DNC. Um, that's the whole modus operandi of what the speeches are about, right? And so I want to recap a little bit of the speeches. I, I'm not going to get into the weeds on every little thing that was said um, because, uh, honestly, a lot of it really doesn't matter. Um, political speeches at uh, political conventions are for one purpose. It is to appeal to the base of the party, get them energized, and it's kind of like a pep rally for that side to get them motivated to go out and vote. Um, and, and it's pretty much it. I mean, in the old days, uh, conventions had a lot of purpose to them. There was a lot of things that were done at um, political conventions, which were actually the grinding out of policy, which would come out of that political party. Um, so this is where the party platform was really made and decided on. Um, these conventions were really about picking the best person to represent that platform. And it was almost a, a popularity contest within the convention over who was going to lead it. Um, you know, this is the conventions predate the primary system that we have in this country. We, we currently have a system where we have primaries and each state has a vote and elect somebody, right? And then they, they run through the primary system and whoever has the most delegates at the end, right? They're the winner. And then it goes to the convention and those delegates basically just cast their vote for whoever was the one who won all the states. Uh, it's a pretty simple system um, that's been put together uh, in actually pretty recent, um, within the last 60, 70 years, um, that system has been put in place. Now, in the old days, the convention was really where all the where the wrangling happened. You know, if you look back at the Old Republican Convention, the first one where Abraham Lincoln is chosen to be the presidential uh, nominee. It was not a you know automatic decision. This wasn't something where it was, hey, you know, Lincoln's our guy and he's going to be the president. It, it was very much a series of votes and political wrangling to uh, get Lincoln to that position. Um, so that's what conventions used to be. Nowadays, not so much. Nowadays, it's more of a rubber stamp on the platform that's been already put together. Um, it's a lot of, you know, rah, 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 this is our guy, and speeches on that. And that was, in, that was very evident in the convention that we saw the Democrats hold. Um, although con not a conventional convention, conventional convention, it was an unconventional convention because, of course, COVID-19 and the had to be done over zoom and so there was a, kind of some awkward moments in there because you didn't really have an audience but i think that actually played a little bit to uh the democrats in their favor they didn't have to play to an audience um they it wasn't this resounding speeches to clapping and applause they were able to really get kind of intimate in some of their speeches uh, because in all honesty it was an intimate setting it's person in the camera talking and that's the speech so it, it actually gave a little different dynamic than most conventions are, which are usually very, very big and pep rally oriented speeches, very high, um, you know, very high sounding speeches and things like that. You really didn't see too much of that. Um, there were more intimate type speeches, but I do want to touch on some of them um, just really quickly as we go through. So you had John Kasich. He spoke. Um, you had a couple other Republicans that spoke. Um, Colin Powell being one of them, uh, very short, small speeches. And to, it was an attempt, I think it fell on uh, hollow ears, that they say Republicans support Joe Biden. The reality is is that John Kasich is not a Republican. Um, he was a Republican. He is no longer a Republican. Um, Colin Powell, 
is a Republican uh, really in just a name only. Um, I think Colin Powell is a hero. I think he's a patriot, but I don't think he's a Republican. I think he's had that moniker put on him that he's a Republican. He's held that up, but he's an establishment person, and he goes the establishment way. Same thing with John Kasich. So the, the they paraded some people with R's next to their names to try to build this consensus feeling that you have Republicans, it's bipartisan support for Joe Biden. Uh, the reality is it kind of just showed that you have a lot of establishment support for Joe Biden because he's really the establishment candidate uh, as far as the Democrat establishment goes. And the Democrat Party is kind of well known for this, um, all, albeit 2008 was different. They're kind of known for just the, the kingmaker kind of thing. They, they have these people who are the heir to the party, so to speak, and those people usually get – the nomination automatically. Um, in 2016, you saw that play out uh, really horribly with uh, Hillary Clinton, and she was put up as the the Democrat candidate, and it was a, it was almost a foregone conclusion that she was going to be the Democrat candidate. It didn't matter who else was running; they really weren't of any kind of importance. And in fact, uh, the, the Democrat National Committee. Uh, was caught actually rigging the election against Bernie Sanders. They actually were sabotaging his election in exchange for Hillary Clinton. So um, they were actually caught doing this kingmaking kind of thing. But that is usually traditionally how they are. Um, in 2008, that wasn't the case. Barack Obama really did kind of come out of nowhere, um, and he kind of shook up the party, and he became the front runner over Hillary Clinton, and that was uh, one of the rare times, I think, in Democrat politics that you see that happen. It doesn't usually happen, but um, he was kind of an outlier on the grand things. Now, with that said, the Democrat Party has changed from those 2016 days and, and earlier. Barack Obama, although he might have been what we call um, we call him a dark horse candidate, candidate comes out of nowhere, right, and it becomes uh, the presidential candidate, you know, like a James Polk did back in the 1840s. These people have come around and no one knows who they are. Um, they're just these... They're, some politician somewhere, and then all of a sudden they become the candidate. Uh, it's a rare thing in politics, but it does occur. I think the closest thing we had to it in this last election cycle was uh, Pete Buttigieg, who, you know, kind of a completely unknown political figure, this mayor of South Bend, Indiana, and he just comes around and he, he's very eloquent and very well spoken and he gives good speeches and he's very intelligent, and uh, he, he all of a sudden showed up on the scene. He's someone definitely to watch out for in politics because he will not go away. He will be around some more for sure. Um, but he was an example of one of those people, uh, a dark horse that comes in and no one knows anything about him. Barack Obama was that same way in 2008. But he has solidified himself as no longer this rarity of person. I think the Obamas are in strong, strong control of the Democrat Party at this point. Um, they have solidified their control. They are the new guard and they out with the old guard of Hillary Clinton. So that's the first person I wanted to bring up was Hillary. Hillary gave a speech, um, uh, I guess you could call it a speech, at the DNC, where she was sitting in a chair and she you know, had the Zoom camera on her and she gave her uh, pretty, I would not give it high marks as a speech. First of all, Hillary Clinton never was a very good speaker. Um, she doesn't come across as a very warm person. Um, she doesn't, uh, bring you in to the speech at all. She's very kind of callous, I think, in her, her, the way she speaks. And she rehashed a lot of kind of garbage in her speech uh, that she had lost, um, that, that Trump had cheated to win, and that he's going to cheat to win again, she said. So things like that, um, I don't think 
the, they play good to the real extreme people in the in the Democrat Party, but it was more of a pity party for Hillary Clinton in her speech. So she don't I don't think she had the uh, effect that the Democrats may have wanted, but I know why they paraded her out there. She's the old candidate. They threw her out there, and the idea is she is the old guard of the Democrat Party. Um, they had Bill Clinton speak. Uh, John Kerry spoke. They are the old guard of the Democrat Party. These are the people who used to be in control of the Democrat Party at one point. They were the ones who were made king and queen of the Democrat Party um, by the DNC, but they are no more. They are a fading thing, which makes it interesting that they Biden is the candidate because he is the old guard as well. And they kind of threw him out there as the he's the candidate now, but he's kind of the last vestige of the old guard of the Democrat Party of the 90s um, and, and 2000s, which is trying to kind of make themselves relevant, I think, in this election, uh, more for voter turnout. I think they want Democrats to go out and vote. That's why they did that. Um, and not really actually going to be involved in the party at all from this point forward. I mean, I, I really think their, their party's done. Um, in another uh, four years, I don't think you'll see any of them speaking at any kind of Democrat National Convention because I think they're, they're out with the old kind of thing. This is the last gasp uh, of them put in there, the last vestiges of that old card. So that covers Hillary and a couple other ones. Um, then we go on to the new guard. These are the new people that were trotted out to speak. Now, Michelle Obama gave a speech, and she gave a speech that would arguably be, I would think, the most powerful of all the speeches given at the convention. And she really outlined a lot of social justice things. Um, she broke down things on a race base. Uh, she kind of drew a line using race uh, and basically have and have nots. It, it was a big speech like that, and it really pushed people to go out and vote. Now, um, that was her, her main purpose of her speech. I think it was a very good speech. I think it was well-written. I think she did a good job. Uh, I think she did a very good job delivering the speech. Um, but the speech kind of was a doom and gloom speech when it really comes down to it. It was not very uplifting. It was doom and gloom. Uh, and that brings me to the next person that I'm going to talk about, and that's Barack Obama. Barack Obama, former president, he gave his speech. And his speech was, I, I had posted about this after, right after the speech had happened. I, after all the speeches, I kind of posted a little recap on, this is what I thought of the speech, blah, blah, blah. And with Barack Obama's speech, um, I did feel like it was a good speech. I feel like it was well-delivered, of course, because Barack Obama is a very eloquent speaker. Um, he's a good orator. And he... Can you could put the ABCs on a teleprompter and put it in front of Barack Obama, and he's going to make it sound really, really good. Um, that is what he does. Um, so to give him credit, it was a very well-delivered speech. Um, but when you get down to actually the nitty-gritty of the speech, it was an extremely divisive speech. Um, it was very much a negative speech. And uh, it, ironically, it was a speech that had a lot of platitudes in it, which is kind of Barack Obama's style. He, he, it was very Obama-esque, but it was full of platitudes. I mean, it was full of phrases that really don't mean anything. They're, they're phrases that you could have given that speech, changed a couple of the words in the speech, given it to a Republican candidate, 
and a Republican candidate could have gave that exact same speech, and it would have gone over the exact same way. Um, he would have been cheered by the people who support him and jeered by the people who didn't. Um, that is that that is the type of speech it was. It was divisive. It was one-sided. Um, but it was very much one of those speeches that could have been written for anyone with just names changed and put on. You could take the label of Republican and make it Democrat and Democrat and make it Republican. And that speech goes both ways. So in all honesty, it was not really a good speech. It was delivered well, but the speech itself was not a good speech. It didn't make anyone excited. Um, it was really just another uh, doom and gloom uh, kind of speech. Now, Michelle Obama's was doom and gloom. Barack Obama's was doom and gloom. Hillary Clinton's was the ultimate doom and gloom. Um, a lot of doom and gloom speeches. And that's not just saying you know they were negative. I mean, there was a, a, a current through the whole convention of the world's going to end in 10 years. I mean, that was literally said by one of the speakers. The world was going to end in 10 years. And then you had, you know, if, if Trump wins, then the democracy is going to fail and it's going to be end of the American system and it's going to be a dictatorship and all these things. I mean, it was really very, very negative and really unhinged. I mean, the world's not going to end in 10 years, no matter who's president. And if the world is going to end in 10 years, why would it matter who the hell we elect president? It wouldn't make any difference in that case. You know, Joe Biden's probably not going to be around in 10 years um, to even see the world end. So the the reality is, you know, maybe neither even Trump would be. So the, this idea that 10 years, the world's going to end, and oh my God, we got to vote Democrat. If you don't, it's all over. It's just, it's just insanity. It's just stoking the fire and trying to light up the base to go out there and, and get those votes. Um, so Barack Obama, he really did that. That was his job. His purpose at the convention was to go out there and do that. Um, and for some reason, I think if it, if it was a different candidate, not Joe Biden, then he would have gave a much better speech. Uh, but I just don't think there's, there's a lot of real support. Um, I don't think they think Joe Biden's really the candidate they want. And that is why Kamala or Kamala Harris is the vice president. In Barack Obama's speech, he does mention this passing of the torch kind of idea that they're passing the torch on to the new guard, right, of the Democrat Party. And Kamala Harris is that new guard. Um, people like her, they are the more radical in the party. They are the more extreme, the more socialist driven in the party. They're also the ones who are willing to do anything in the political party. And that's not a, a jeer towards her because I know she has a history and people brought that up. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about doing anything as far as she will sell herself out to any side of the political party that's going to give her the most support. That's how she's done it her whole entire career. Um, that's why they've put her forward, because she's an, a moldable candidate for that. She's like a pit bull candidate. She's been described that way, where Joe Biden's more of a puppy dog. She's the pit bull. So they're using her to give Joe Biden cover, of course. And she's a very hard person to attack. I mentioned that in my last um, podcast that I made uh, for why um, they chose Kamala Harris. So if you get a chance, of course, listen to that episode and you'll hear more about the theory behind what they're doing in that election. But she gave her speech. Her speech was it was good. I, I, I don't have a lot of criticism for it. She's a VP candidate. Um, she gave her kind of, I'm going to get Mike Pence and blah, 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 blah. And it was, it was, it was I'm going to be a good vice president and we're going to support Joe. And she didn't step on anybody's toes in the speech. 
Um, she didn't steal anybody's thunder. She kind of just played the line the way she is. Now, do I think she will govern that way as vice president if she has the chance? Absolutely not. I think she'll take complete control over the White House and over the political party, and it could be a disaster. So she played nice in the convention. Again, not really what she thinks, but I think they had to play it that way for the convention because, of course, they're setting everything up for Joe Biden, who is going to speak on the on Thursday. She spoke on Wednesday, I believe. And so Thursday was Joe Biden's day. And so they didn't want to step on anyone's toes. They wanted to make Joe Biden look good. And so she was kind of put in her place, I think, for her speech. Um, she did have a little bit of controversy over the the crowd because there was no crowd. So they're, you know, they're, they're clapping and waving. And then there's these Zoom images of people clapping for her at the end of the speech. And the DNC uh, duplicated people's images on the screen to fill the screen. And that looked really bad because it's like what you couldn't get, like an extra four or five people up on the screen of like 12 people. Um, you couldn't find those to clap for her. Like it was pretty, it was pretty embarrassing. I think embarrassing moment for the technical people at the DNC that they couldn't figure that out. Um, so it didn't make her look very good. That's for sure. So moving on to the last night of the DNC, you have Joe Biden giving his speech, right? And this was the speech that everyone was white knuckled waiting for Joe Biden to give. Everyone was like, Oh, is Joe going to be able to deliver the speech? Is he going to be able to do it without making any mistakes? Um, is he able to come across like he has all his faculties there? That was a big concern with Joe Biden. And Joe Biden, I think, gave a good speech. It was a powerful speech. I think it was well-delivered. It was very well-written. Um, it definitely made the line in the sand, the crossroads that I talked about, it really put them in here. you got to save the country from President Trump. So that's why you got to vote for um, you got to vote for Joe Biden. So he used a lot of figurative language, you know, light versus dark. Um, he talked about, you know, good versus evil. And uh, he's going to have the hope and the light. And he's going to be this great candidate. It's going to unite people and bring them together. Um, and then he kind of went into uh, a world of fake America. <laughs> his his speech went from being America, real America, you know, and, and all these things that he's talking about, but he really described a fake America that wasn't, that's not real. There is a real America out there, and there's a lot of things going on in real America. A lot of those things were not mentioned at all by Joe Biden. Now, not to think they would be. I mean, he's not going to mention the riots going on in Portland or these protest movements that are turning into riots and this anti-cop sentiment that we have in the country. And these people that are you know, this just blatant communists and socialists that are running around trying to change our political system and our economic system and wanting extreme change done to it. And they're in positions of power and they're gaining even more. Or the media that follows them around and, and, and per, it actually amplifies their voice. None of that, of course, was mentioned. But he's not going to do that. Instead, he blamed. He blamed the president for pretty much everything. Blamed him for the virus. Um, and how bad the virus got, and 175,000 Americans are dead because of the president. That was a, a theme throughout the convention. It was just not a reality. I mean, it's a reality if those people died, yes. But is it the president's fault they died? No. If anything, this president has done a lot to combat this virus. Um, pulled, the, pulled the government restrictions off of things 
so that they could go tackle this virus and try to find a solution to this. We have vaccines that are making it through trials faster than any vaccine ever in the history of the planet. So these are things that are directly contributable to President Trump's leadership on the virus. Now, it doesn't come across well because Trump doesn't do a good job expressing himself, but it's true. It's a reality. So to blame the president for the virus and saying he didn't have a plan, it's just that's a complete falsity that doesn't exist. That's something made up by Joe Biden and his speechwriters to try to make Trump look bad. Um, he went on to blame Trump on the economy. Now, th- this is a very interesting thing that has been brought up during this convention and in recent weeks, that the economy's bad and it's Trump's fault the economy's bad. I mean, if there was any more of a more blatant political play, a low political play, it's the economy's bad because of President Trump. Um, it makes the Democrats look like they're rooting for a bad economy um, because it's one of their only chances they might have of winning. If the economy's bad, people are going to blame President Trump and so on and so forth, and it's going to get Democrat votes and it's going to get them put into office. Um, it's not a good look to be rooting for a bad economy. And blaming the Trump administration for the economy collapsing, not really good. I mean, the whole country has shut down its economy over the coronavirus. I mean, everyone had shut down and it really did take a big hit on the economy. And we talked about that in other podcasts that we had to do a lot of government intervention, which I don't always agree with to try to pull us back out of this. But you have a lot of States out there that have reopened or in the process of reopening and their economies are improving. They're getting better um, slowly, but they're getting there. Um, unemployment's still high in many States, but there's an effort to try to get the economy back on the rails, get it back going again um, in the aftermath of this virus, which is still ongoing, right? Um, Although we do have a lot of successful numbers, especially coming out of places like Florida, which our numbers are going way down. They're they're at some of the lowest points they've been um, since June. So that's a good sign. It looks like we're, we're probably over the hump here. And so Opening up the economy is a good thing at this point. Like it's what we should be doing. As the numbers are going down, the economy should be rearing back up, and we should be getting it going again. So that's a positive sign for the economy. Now you do have some states which are continuing to keep their economies down and shut down, um, and that's not necessarily a good thing. I mean, that one of the worst and most. I mean, it made my stomach turn. This moment at the DNC was when they had a little. Uh, you know, they have these little video segments they do between all the speeches. And they had this video segment. They had Eric Garcetti, the mayor of Los Angeles. And he was walking around Los Angeles, and he, he had two businesses he was focusing on in this video. And he was talking to two business owners about how bad things are for their business. And one was this uh, – they're both restaurants. And the one woman had said, oh, you know, they don't, they're not going to make it another month, and they're going to have to shut down. And the other guy said that they're, you know, they're working really hard. They kind of cut staff and everything just so they can make it. And Eric Garcetti's sitting there like, you know, I'm a shoulder to lean on. He's like, that's so horrible. These are, things are so bad. Blah, 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 blah. Trump, Trump, Trump. But the reality is Eric Garcetti is the mayor of the city. He is the reason these people's businesses are shut down. He's the reason they can't make any money. That they're not allowed to open up and allowed to do anything. He is the reason behind it. He is literally holding their heads underwater and then asking them, oh, why can't you breathe? Why can't you? Oh, it must be Trump that's doing a bad job. This guy is actually the one doing it. 
Trump wants to reopen the economy. He wants to get businesses back going. He's trying to do it. He's getting ridiculed every minute that he says anything like opening up the economy or trying to get things going again. He's getting ridiculed for this. Yet they prance around with the Eric Garcetti, the mayor of Los Angeles, and have these people crying on this DNC video when he's the reason why they're crying. And people don't even realize that. I mean, it was a horribly low moment in the DNC for anyone with a brain that actually knew what was going on in the world who watched this would realize that this is how politics work. But there's a, a, there's a theme going on here that you don't need to know really how government works, right? You just need to blame Trump for everything. It must be his fault. He's the guy in the White House, so it must be his fault for everything. Even though all these Democrat-run states and Democrat-run cities are collapsing all around you because of horrible, horrible leadership and people who cannot do anything, you know, Chicago, Portland, Seattle, Los Angeles, right? All those things, just close your eyes. They're all Democrat-run, but it can't be their fault that, that there's a problem. It must be Trump. It must be Trump that's doing it. He didn't fight the virus good enough. It must be his fault. You know, maybe we need a national mask mandate, and that will solve all the problems. That's literally what Joe Biden said in his speech, that a national man mask mandate is what he would put in place. Well, he's not. if he gets elected, he wouldn't become president until January 20th at noon. So that means we're going to have a national mask mandate when? Five months from now? Hopefully the virus at that point is gone, and we have treatments for it and vaccines, and we're able to treat it if it comes around again on a yearly basis, and it'll become like the flu. We don't all go around wearing masks for the flu. Maybe we should. Under a Joe Biden administration, he'll make it necessary and required that you wear masks all the time, all of your life, everywhere you go, so nobody will ever get sick again. So maybe that's his plan. So I can't believe he actually said that in a speech, but he did. But it's a buzzword. It's it's a you know another statement that red meat to the base. Here you go. National mask mandate. It's going to solve all our problems. Um, Trump didn't do it. I'm going to solve it, right? There, there's nothing I don't think... Joe Biden would have done that's different than Trump in this situation. He would have listened to his advisors, um, the same advisors that Trump is actually listening to, right? Dr. Fauci, Dr. Bricks, and probably would have made similar decisions along a similar line. I think Trump did a lot of things that he didn't want to do with this virus. I think Trump wanted to do different things. I think he wanted to keep things open. He didn't want to shut everything down. And then the reality of the virus really started to hit him. But he did do some things early on, like his travel ban. He stopped flights in from China. Um, he then stopped flights in from Europe. Um, he did some things that Joe Biden criticized him for when he did them, calling him a racist and how bad he was. So for Joe Biden to have that on the record, but then come out and say, I would have done things differently, maybe he would have, and the results probably would have been way worse um, than what has happened under the Trump administration. So I don't believe him for a second that he would have done anything positive. Um, more positive than Trump has handled this. Uh, but with that said, I think anyone handling this is having trouble, all countries, because this is unprecedented, of course. So those were the things along the lines. Um, in in Joe Biden's speech, he, he brings up the, the age-old uh, neo-Nazi Charlottesville uh, claim that Joe Biden or that um, Donald Trump said there are good people on both sides. He never did. Um, that's been debunked a million times. You can listen to the thing. He said that there were good people on both sides of the protests, and he denounced um, the white supremacist and the KKK neo-Nazi people that were there. Um, that's never been covered accurately by the media. They just love playing this line, trying to convince you that he said something he didn't really say. Um, so he parroted this line, Joe Biden did, in his speech again. 
uh, as if to drive it home again, this fake statement that wasn't really actually made. And it was more of a doom and gloom speech. Now, he ended it saying hope and light and unity and all that stuff, but that's not what the speech was about. That was the conclusion of the speech and the platitudes thrown in to make you think it was a positive speech. It wasn't. It was doom and gloom. The entire thing was doom and gloom. If you don't vote for Joe Biden, the world is going to end. That was basically, in a nutshell, what the DNC was all about. The worst part about this was you really got to see what is driving the undercurrent of the Democrat Party. Joe Biden, as I said before, he was the old guard, right? He's the last vestiges of his old guard, the Hillary Clintons, the Bill Clintons, um, that the Ted Kennedys, if you want to say, I mean, even they, they had the Kennedys out there in their DNC, but those, that's the old guard. That's the cover. They're the cover for everything else. The new guard of the Democrat party, Kamala Harris, Barack Obama, um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, they are the undercurrent. They're the new guard of the Democrat Party. And they're really the Socialist Party of America that is using the Democrats as their guys. Um, they've learned from history that if you run as a socialist, it doesn't usually work out for you. So you need to have something else there. You need to have a D in front of your name. That's going to get you where you need to go. So all of these are actually socialists, but they're running under the Democrat banner. And, and they're slowly but surely pulling the Democrat Party farther to the left, farther into socialism um, as platform positions, which you can see uh, apparent in the DNC today. So if Democrats are elected, that's the pathway they want to go. So we're back to that crossroads of which way we're going to go. Make no buts about it. The crossroads of going down voting for Joe Biden is leading that direction. I mean, those are the people he's going to be putting into positions of power, um, and that's the new guard of the Democrat Party. Now, I'm not mentioning much about going the Republican way yet because I still want to see the RNC and how the speeches go, and I'll recap that after they're done, and then we'll finish this picture of where the crossroads lead, right? We'll finish the roadmap on where these crossroads go. But we do know one side, and one path is going to lead you towards socialism, towards uh what they call democratic socialism and communism on one end, and we don't quite know where the other one is going. Um, I have an idea, but I don't want to be biased. So we'll wait till the RNC, of course, comes about and we hear the speeches from them and see if they're as doomy and gloomy as the Democrats were in their speech because uh, it was pretty doomy, gloomy in theirs. Um, so that was the DNC in a nutshell. The next thing I want to bring up is... The post office conspiracy. Now, usually when you hear the word conspiracy, you're thinking of things like, you know, QAnon, which was brought up by the media this week in a question to President Trump. Uh, and he gave, a, I thought, a quite uh, interesting answer uh, when they asked about QAnon and how it's a conspiracy where people uh, like drink blood and they're pedophiles and they're they eat people and there's cannibals that there's cannibals in the government eating people. And um, they asked, you know, if president Trump agreed with it or not. And his answer was, I thought pretty masterful um, as a way to troll the media, but he gave an answer saying, uh, you know, is that a bad thing? If we're going to save the world from you know, pedophiles who eat people and drink people's blood, is that a bad thing? Um, which I thought was quite of a funny answer from the give. So usually when you think of conspiracy theory, 
you're applying it to people like Donald Trump, right? Or Infowars or, um, you know, QAnon or something like that or something you see on a Facebook posting somewhere, right? It's usually not associated with the Democrats. Um, they are usually, you know, in the media's world, they are the level-headed ones that are going to save the country, right? And, and prevent the country from ending in 10 years. Um, but the post office issue, situation that's come up is a full-blown conspiracy, a proven false conspiracy theory. Um, I don't know if people have proved false people eating children and a you know, pedophile ring in the highest order. I don't know if that's been proven false yet or not. Um, I haven't seen any evidence either way. Um, so the jury's still out. Who knows? But we do know that the post office uh, theory is a conspiracy and it's been proven. Um, so let's get into it. Where does this all begin, right? Why is the post office all of a sudden becoming an issue? I mean, it's a, a post office should be a very nonpartisan thing. They deliver the mail. Sometimes they deliver it well. Sometimes they lose your mail. But they're the post office, right? They've been around forever, centuries, right? They were the oldest institution of the United States government is pretty much the post office. Benjamin Franklin was the first postmaster general the country ever had. Um, the post office is a kind of an essential thing to... Uh, the American government, right? We need to deliver the mail. That's uh, in sleet or snow or all those other things, right? They made a great movie in the 90s with Kevin Costner about how he, after a nuclear holocaust, the first thing you need to restore is the post office, right? I mean, for God's sakes, it must be a very important thing if after everything else is destroyed, the post office is really the first thing we need to fix um, in a post-apocalyptic world, and Kevin Costner is just the man to do it. Uh, so that's um, the post office, right? No one would argue that it's an important thing important institution but it's under fire all right and there's a uh, there's a president that we have who's destroying it and all in this attempt to stop people from voting that is the that is the theory here that is being propagated by the democrat party um and it couldn't be more ridiculous but here's where it stems from this is why the post office has all of a sudden became an issue there's a thing called mail-in voting You've heard about it. It's been talked about all over TV. Um, the president has given speeches about it. He's taken press conferences and railed against how much he hates it. And we've been told that mail-in voting is great. And we're in a time of pandemic and mail-in voting is needed um, to get people to vote because otherwise they'll, you know, people aren't going to vote and Trump might get reelected and then the world's going to end in 10 years, right? So it's all connected. So what is the bad thing with mail-in voting? So let me break it down a little bit for you. First of all, Voting by mail has existed for a very long time, and nobody really argues whether voting by mail is a, is a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Um, people can vote absentee, meaning you're not able to actually go to the polling place and vote, but you're able to still cast your vote, and it counts. It works great for soldiers that we have stationed overseas and Americans who might not be in the country at the moment or be away from their house. It's a wonderful thing um, to have mail-in voting. Now, this has been construed with this newer type of mail-in voting called universal mail-in voting. Now, the universal is the key word here. It's one thing to vote by mail and drop your ballot in the mailbox and it goes to your supervised elections and it gets counted as a vote for you. It's another thing when you talk about universal mail-in voting. Now, there's been a lot of debate back and forth here because what is that? So universal mail-in voting is when they send a ballot, whether you want one or not, to every single voter on the voter roll. You may have heard that. That means if you are registered to vote in a state, you're going to get 
a ballot in the mail, whether you wanted to get one or did not want to get one. That is what universal means. Everybody gets one. Now, this means if you moved, if you are dead, you're still going to get a ballot, and it's going to be mailed to whatever address they have on file, right? So that's what universal means. Now, why is this a bad thing, you might ask? Um, And the bad thing comes in the implementation of this. It isn't necessarily a bad thing to mail people a ballot. It is a waste of a lot of resources to mail everyone a ballot. But it's not necessarily on its face a bad thing. People, More people vote, it's a good thing, right? Um, but the problem with mailing everyone a ballot, outside of the logistical issue of mailing everyone a ballot, um, is, one, how do you know the person it, you were sending the ballot to is really the person that you wanted to send the ballot to? There's really no check on that other than maybe a signature that you're going to put on the ballot and it's going to have to be matched with a signature they have on file. Um, that requires somebody to match your signature and hope that they matched it well. This has a huge downside. One, people can either match you correctly, or two, they can match you incorrectly, or they can match or people and say they are, are not right when they actually are right, and then they actually um, got disenfranchised um, from voting because some person on the other end made an error. Um, so now that's a big deal. Normally, in a normal election, when you vote absentee, they have that same requirement that the signatures are matched. But there's a process for you to, of course, uh, you know, say, hey, I, I am the person I did, prove it's you, and all those other things for them to do that. Plus, there's not as many people voting in a normal election with absentee voting compared to universal mail-in. If you're promoting universal mail-in for everyone, it's going to be a whole lot more ballots coming in, you know, in the terms of millions millions more ballots coming in that need to be confirmed. Um, That's a problem in itself. And that's why a big argument has been made that it could delay elections. The other thing is the actual laws governing mailing and voting in certain states. Now, there's about five states in the country that do universal mail-in voting right now. They have been doing it for about six years. And they have said that it took them years um, or it took them, let me correct myself, it took them about six years, these states, to get the system in place to do mail-in voting and have it be accurate. Um, so it's not something they just threw together in a matter of a couple months before an election took place. This is something that took years to get the voter rolls updated, to make sure it was accurate, to, change, to teach people how to do it and all those things. Um, not something that you just throw together and do. And in most states with absentee ballots, um, there is a process to this. Like, for example, in Florida. You have to apply for your absentee ballot, meaning you have to request one. They don't just send everybody one. You need to request one. You are the person requesting it. They're going to send it to your registered address on file so they know that you are the person that is supposedly getting it. You then fill it out. Florida then has rules. If you're going to mail that ballot back in, which is what most people are going to do, right? That's why it's mail-in voting. You are going to have to send that in 10 days before an election. Because it takes a while for it to get to the supervisor elections. So the requirements 10 days before. If you miss that deadline of 10 days, you need to either drop your ballot off at the supervisor of elections or a collection uh, area. Or you can bring it to a polling location on election day, turn it in in exchange for a regular ballot. Um, 
But the reality is, is that the absentee ballot sent out, that's your ballot. You cannot vote absentee and then go vote. It won't allow you to do that. The system won't let you. Um, and since you have to vote 10 days before or send it in 10 days beforehand, it really reduces the amount of people who might be sending an absentee ballot and try to go vote in the same election um, because of the time difference there. Uh, so we have some rules in place with absentee voting to govern it, to try to make it as accurate and not fraud prone as possible. In states that are trying to implement the new universal mail-in voting system, this is not necessarily the case. States like New Jersey, who are implementing it for the first time this year, they're allowing you to mail your ballot out on the day of the election. That means you can put it in your mailbox the day of the election, and it can get sent in with the mail. Now, obviously, it's going to take a few days for it to get there because the mail system, and that's how it works. So... It's going to take a few days, and then the other problem is it needs to be postmarked the day that you sent it, but a lot of these are prepaid, pre-sorted, first-class mail. They don't get postmarked, so um, it runs into a problem of actually proving you put it in the day of the election and not putting it in right after you heard the results of the election the next morning or something like that, right? So that becomes a little bit of an issue. Not to mention, it could take a long time to figure out who won that way. And the reason why it takes a long time to figure out the way is, unlike states like Florida, where you go in and you turn your, your absentee ballot in, you get a real ballot to go vote, a real ballot, you get a voting ballot, right? An in-person ballot, I should say. That in-person ballot is the one that counts. You went and you voted in person, you turned in the absentee one, you get that in-person one that counts. And these new vote-by-mail states um, that are doing universal mail-in voting, you can go vote on election day. The same day you mailed in this thing. There's no requirement for you to bring it with you to the polling location. And if you do vote, the vote that you cast at the polling location is not the primary ballot. It's what's called known, it's what's known as a provisional ballot, which means it doesn't count until after the ballots and the votes are all collected. To They have to make sure that you didn't mail one in before they count your ballot that you did at the actual poll which is kind of backwards because you'd think that the one you actually physically filled out at the poll would count before a mailed-in one would count, but that's not the case. So if you have millions of people doing this, it could definitely delay an election by a very, very long period of time. And that is why you have the statement said by the president that we might not know who the president is, right? It, it might not know who won. It, it has real implications um, in real life with universal mail-in voting. So I'm not a proponent of that, but... That's what the difference is between the two others. Not huge differences, but they're nuanced enough to cause a lot of problems. Not to mention, of course, fraud and someone you know signing someone's name on it, sending it in and having it count, right? Or your dead grandfather voting for Joe Biden or something like that, right? There's other, of course, problems that are there. Um, not to mention the possibility of it getting lost in the mail, which is definitely a strong possibility. So with all that said, why is there a post office conspiracy? Well, the post office conspiracy comes from that. So mail-in voting became the big problem. There's a lot of pushback by certain politicians about mail-in voting um, and questions about whether they can actually be done um, and done successfully uh, this close to an election being carried out and, of course, an election with this kind of um, high stakes, right, that have already been outlined, of course, by Democrats in the DNC. So this big crossroads election we have, want to make sure things are accurate, make sure things are okay and correct. So where did this conspiracy come from? Well, there is a new postmaster general. He's been in, office, uh, been in the reins about 64 days now. 
in charge of the post office, um, and he was implementing some reforms. Um, these reforms had to do with uh, streamlining the post office because, as you probably know, the post office doesn't make a lot of money. It's supposed to be self-sufficient and pay for itself. It doesn't pay for itself, and it needs to be constantly bailed out. So part of this um, new postmaster general is to try to get it back into paying for itself. Um, so he had to do some reforms to try to get that. Mail is obviously very down because of the coronavirus, and that has, they're, they're facing a lot of challenges in getting it fixed. Now, the first thing that was peddled out there as a problem was uh, on the heels of Nancy Pelosi going on vacation and walking away from a deal for the coronavirus and unemployment benefits and things like that, when she walked away, I, she did take some heat for that because a lot of Americans were like, why didn't you stay in Washington and negotiate this out? And she walked away from it, and she then tried to hold up that the funding for the post office is being held up because no deal's been made and they haven't passed her Heroes Act, which is $3 trillion of pet projects and spending that's not going to help America. And that's the problem with the post office. Unfortunately, that's easily debunked because the post office had a $10 billion loan um, through the Treasury Department and they've already announced that they were solvent all the way till 2021. So no effect on the election as of this year. Um, the funding did not matter, right? The next thing we heard was that they're getting rid of mailboxes. They got rid of 3,500 mailboxes. Well, they've gotten rid of mailboxes every year for the last 10 years. This is not unusual. This is a program already in place. They go around, they see what market areas need mailboxes and what market areas aren't using mailboxes anymore. And of course, they remove the mailboxes that aren't being used in high tra and like in low traffic areas. And then they streamline, of course, their delivery schedules and things like that to compensate for that. Um, it's called regular doing business, right? It's what they have to do um, as anyone who has to update your things. I mean, you walk around the street right now, there's not many payphones around um, because they're not needed. Right, but if payphones were run by the government, there'd be payphones everywhere. You'd have someone out there arguing that we need more payphones and we need to maintain payphones because, God forbid, someone needs to make a phone call one eight hundred collect or ten ten three two one, and they need to make their phone call. And if they don't have a, a payphone available, they're gonna die out on the street or something. Right? That's what would happen if the Democrat Party was in charge of the phone service. Right? You would have more useless things like phone books and phone booths lying around, never being used, right? It's the same principle here. It, we don't have phone booths everywhere because it doesn't make sense, right? We don't have as many mailboxes because it doesn't make sense to have as many mailboxes. People are not sending as much mail as they used to send. That is a reality, right? So that is this the reason why, another reason why they're trying, starting to say, the, you know, it's Trump doing this when it's really not. It's been happening for a long time. And Postmaster General DeJoy said that in, in the hearing that was held on Friday. Um, so, boom, another debunk to the conspiracy theory. The other thing is a, a true thing that some mail has been slowed down. Some of that it has to do with the post office itself making these reforms um, and trying to streamline things. There, there's a story about a sorting machine that was broken in New Hampshire, um, which apparently was down uh, for regular maintenance. Um, and really wasn't much of a thing. There's also some other sorting machines that aren't used anymore because there's not as many letters. So that was another peg in the conspiracy theory. And then Nancy Pelosi came out yesterday and gave a press conference talking about the post office and the need to pass more post office spending, uh, a $25 billion in spending they want to do to prop up the post office, right? And she gave this interesting press conference talking about how 
the post office is essential and all these things, and deriding the fact that the post office, one of the reasons why it's not solvent is it has to fund its retirement benefits for 75 years in a 10-year period, something that no other business would ever have to do. Nancy Pelosi rightfully called this out. This is something that conservatives have been saying for a while. They were saying that this is not a good thing and is one of the reasons why the post office doesn't have any money. And perhaps if that wasn't the case, the post office would be doing better. But that was all done under a 2006 law called the uh, it's called the PAEA. And uh, I forget the whole thing of what's called Post Accountability and Something Act. And it was passed in 2006. And it did a lot of things or said that the post office had to be self-sufficient and a lot of good things in it. Um, it also said that uh, Postmaster General had to be um, approved by the Board of Directors for the post office, which is a bipartisan board um, of people appointed by the president. Um, but in order for someone to be eligible, they had to be approved by all of the post office unions. So in order to get approved, the unions had to say yes. Um, that was also in that bill. And then it had this provision for retirement benefits for 75 years of retirement benefits to be paid out over a 10-year period. Um, that is one that uh, Nancy Pelosi honed in on in her speech. Um, the ironic thing is Nancy Pelosi voted for the 2006 PAEA. She was the reason, one of the reasons, why this bill passed. And it's one of the reasons why we're dealing with this today. So then she says that we have to rush back to Washington. We have to pass $25 billion in funding to fix the post office. A post office that she originally voted to hurt. So where is the conspiracy here? The only conspiracy here is that you have someone playing politics with the post office who's willing to go on vacation to not pay people for unemployment benefits or for stimulus checks or things like that that the American public really probably needs because the economy's been hurt by shutting down over COVID. Instead, we can rush back to Washington, D.C. and fund the post office for $25 billion that it doesn't even need this year. Also, we can have a political talking point to hit against the president. Oh, which, by the way, um, was one of the things that Nancy Pelosi had voted to put in place back in 2006. Um, she probably doesn't remember that because she probably doesn't remember much, but she's been in office for so long, you get to lose all the votes that you made. They all kind of mold together, I'm sure. Um, but she's one of the reasons why we are in that situation as it is. So that is your post office conspiracy, which is not really a conspiracy. It's simply politics being played with the post office. That is the reality of the situation. Um, so hopefully that gives you some uh perspective on what's going on in the world today and politics today. Um, and next week, I'll be watching the RNC, the Republican National Co uh, Convention. We'll see the speeches made there, and I'll hopefully highlight them for you at the end of next week and give you another update on where we are in this crossroads. So remember, as Reagan said in this interview, if you one thing happens, another thing happens because of it, right? Well, you know, the old sayings, one door closes, another one opens, right? That's kind of what Reagan was alluding to. So he didn't get that sportcaster, or he didn't get that uh, position in the in the uh, sports store selling sporting goods, right? And instead, he got this little job 
I think it was something really stupid. It was like $10 or something. He got paid for doing his uh, sport cast on a Saturday, right? Um, uh, back when he was doing this. So I don't even think it might have not been that much. I, I have to reread the interview. But he, uh, he got a very small amount of money to do this, right? And he went ahead and took it because it was a, a door opening. And perhaps had he gotten that job selling sporting goods, he never would have done what he ended up doing. And, and he probably would have never done the things he did in his lifetime, right, To and become president of the United States. He was at a crossroads and had to go one way or the other. Uh, I mean, the decision was kind of made for him. Uh, but in our case, we are, as a country, we are at that crossroads that was brought up by the Democrats and the DNC. And it's really apparent after the week of speeches we saw that down one crossroads, one path, is a path towards more government control, more government spending, socialism, and perhaps economic destruction. And on the other path, we really can't see yet. It's it, Both paths may seem dark and gloomy at the onset, right? And so we're not sure which path we want to go down, right? It, it's, it's getting dark. You're looking in the trees. Each path goes one way. The canopy's over them. They're dark. There's fog. Which way are we going to go? Well, we know from what the Democrats said that if we go down their path, we know what's down there. They made that very clear. And we look at the Republican side and Trump, and we look down that path, and we can see the gloom and the darkness and what's out there. But we don't know what's in there yet. So once we watch the Republican National Convention, we get a little more guidance on what that is. I will come back, and I'll let you know what's going on in politics today. So thank you very much for listening. Um, I am on, of course, the Facebook. Uh, Facebook page is Politics Today. Uh, please go ahead and like it. Listen. I am on Spotify now. With uh, the Get the podcast there. You can get them on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can get them there. And you can always email me at politicstodayjro at gmail.com. Um, but make sure you like the page. Uh, share this out. Play it for everyone you see um, and get it out there. And I will be back most likely next week with a recap on the RNC convention. Thank you very much, and you all have a wonderful day.